Tamara Catan, ladies and gentlemen. Tom Rhodes. Tamara Catan. Uh, I met you in Kuala Lumpur. Yep. We were both doing the um, Kuala Lumpur International Comedy Festival. You got it, yeah. And uh, I loved your set, thought you were hilarious, and then we got to talk. Uh, I mean, and I, I, I saw, you know, I heard what you were talking about. You're you're Muslim and Jewish. Yeah. Well, so yeah, if it's, I, and if I told possible. you then, and I'll tell you again, you are the answer to world peace. <laughs> you are a single, one man, peace bringing crew. Amazing. This is what Keanu Reeves must have felt like, right? In in the Matrix, like I'm Neo. I can solve this. No, it was the opposite, Tom. Really? <laughs> yeah. Just strife and turmoil. Well, they weren't religious at all. Is your father Egyptian? Father's Egyptian and mother's Egyptian. So your too. dad likes turmoil. Yeah. Yeah, he absolutely <laughs> did. My mom is the peacekeeper, and my, they are polar opposites. Really? It's almost cartoon-like how opposite they are. Because my mom is a huge Jesus woman, and my dad uh, was like an atheist. Oh, wow. So my house was, con- was Israel and the Gaza Strip. It was sure. this constant holy war. Is, oh, so you're telling me the Buddhist is going to hell because he doesn't accept Jesus? And it was just religious arguments kind of bore the living shit out of me. Sure. But obviously, it's the cause of so much uh, strife and uh, indignation in the world. I I don't think there's enough religious arguments. Yeah? I really don't. Like, you know, what do they teach us when we're kids or when we're becoming adults? Like, in social environments, don't speak about religion or politics. Right. And what are the two things that cause more problems than anything else? Religion and politics. Maybe we should be talking about them more often. Maybe we should be having more fights. It seems like we go from small arguments to dropping bombs, you know, and to, or killing people. And all. So, it's, so was there this constant back and forth between your parents over Islam and Judaism? See, that's the thing. They I, weren't religious. I think, you know how like Maslow's hierarchy of needs is like, if you're worried about food and shelter, you don't care about sex. And, you know, if you, if you don't have sex, you don't care about, you know, that sort of right. a thing. I think with them, I mean, they were they always had a tough time. When we we were in Egypt, my dad was in the military, and we had to work really, really hard to get the visa. And because my parents were different religions, every time my mom would go to the government offices, they'd give her grief. And so they were just worried about how do we get to the next step. They, it was much their their vision was much more short sighted. And then from how do we get our visa to America, and it ended up taking six years longer. And it was my mom's tenacity that got us here. There's no way we would have gotten here if it wasn't for my mom. And then from there, we got to America. And then in America, there was just like, then we had to deal with our own personal level of racism. Right. How, you know, how do you, how do you deal with people judging you and not giving you jobs and things like that? And it, we were just thinking about how to survive, really. Because after we left Egypt and got to America, like money was gone. So where, where's your mom from? She's from Egypt, too. Oh, wow. Yeah. A, a Jewish Egyptian. Yeah. Wow. There used to be tons. I mean, there's still, there's still synagogues in Egypt. But I mean, before, I mean, Israel was only a state, what, in the 50s? Yeah. Something like that? So before, 48. 48? Yeah, exactly. So I think that there's, a, there's a lot of Egyptians that, that are Jewish originally. I mean, Egypt is kind of the Hollywood of Africa and because there were tons of Jewish people in Egypt and they made great films, ironically. And so now, all these years later, like there's tons of Jews that actually still live in Egypt, but they had a choice. Back then, if you didn't convert to Islam, you could pay a tax to keep your religion or you had to convert. And so a lot of people just paid the tax or they pretended to become Coptic Orthodox or something like that because they were, I mean, they were born in Egypt. They lived in Egypt. They had families and friends and businesses that they didn't want to leave behind to move to a new country. 
So, so uh, the, the Coptic Jewish person? Coptic is uh, Christian, Coptic Orthodox. Well, yeah, because I've heard of Coptic Christian. Sure, so I sure. was wondering. So some of them would convert to Coptic Orthodoxy, but they would just say it on paper. They wouldn't care. They would just say it to stay in the... It was, a, it was more of a government document to them than it was a religious one. How old were you when you left Egypt? Uh, seven. Wow. And then you came to the States. Yeah. So you had... You dealt with racism on many different levels. Yeah, absolutely. You got made fun of being... Uh, a, a Jewish person and being a Muslim person. Well, in Egypt, they, they judged us for the Christian side because they knew about my grandmother being Greek. So they used to paint red crosses on our door really late at night. So everybody knew that that apartment was had Christians living in it. Wow. And it, it had happened so often. And my dad would pour gasoline on a towel and to get the paint off. And it happened so often that there was no more paint in the middle of the door from how often it would happen. Like, it was just like, so I was just used to that. I was used to people treating other people poorly for whatever reason, you know? And you were in Egypt performing at the American University yeah. during the... Um, uh, the Revolution. Uh, the revolution. Yeah, yeah. Which I think that revolution was really interesting. I mean, they finally get rid of Mubarak, yeah. who's this, like, ruthless dictator, yeah. lots of rules, yeah. and then they elect the Muslim Brotherhood. Yeah. Hey, we got just got rid of the guy who imposed <laughs> all these rules on us. Yeah. Hey, let's vote for more rules. yeah. But, the, well, you know, they're not great at voting in Egypt. It's, it's, it's a new thing. You know, it's a new thing for the most part. And Mubarak, here's the history with Mubarak. He's, he's scarier than any other leader to me because he's a, he's a scared leader. He was sitting next to Sadat when Sadat got assassinated. Wow. That's when all of a sudden Egypt went from being as close to democratic as it had ever been with Sadat. Then he gets assassinated. Here's this guy's vice president sitting next to him. He probably got blood on him. And then said, screw this. This isn't the way Egypt's going to be. And, and screw democracy. And he tightened up, you know, and, and kind of had martial law in a lot of ways. Like sure. my uncle got taken by the police and beaten because he said some bad things about Mubarak. He made a joke about Mubarak in the back of a taxi cab. Taxi driver told the police. Police came up to our apartment, kicked in the door. Wow, that random. Yeah. Some taxi driver yeah. can drop a dime yeah. on you. Because then the taxi driver gets credit <clears throat> from the police. Wow. You know? They'll take care of him. It's like a get-out-of-jail card in the future, but a literal one, not a monopoly one. So what was it like there during the revolution? Oh. Had you been back a lot, or was that the first time you had gone you know, back? It's, it's, it was, I had not been back a lot. I had not been back a lot. And there's, there's a lot of, I have such mixed feelings with Egypt because I love, the, I love Egyptians. I don't necessarily love Egypt. And I love, Egypt to me is heartbreaking because Egypt is not a homeless man. It's a homeless man that used to be a CEO. It's a homeless guy on the street in a tuxedo. Egypt wasn't always, I mean, it used to be, you know, top of the world. And it used to lead the world with innovation and education. We had a woman president, for crying out loud. We haven't had that in America yet. We had Cleopatra, you know what I mean? Right. So it's just, it, it, it's heartbreaking to me because when I go back, they don't look at me as an Egyptian. They look at me and go, why does this American speak Arabic? Because when I speak Arabic, I sound super Californian. Like, so, let's hear it. <laughs> I just do like Assalamu alaikum, dude. Wa alaikum salam. Yeah, I sound like Jess Piccoli. And the other thing that's weird is that I didn't realize this. <laughs> Did you but, hear that? That's my skull, man. <laughs> dude, I left when I was seven. So when I go back, I'm like, oh, I'm pretty fluent. But what I realize, I, what I seem to forget is I have the vocabulary of a seven year old. So when I'm asking a guy at a restaurant, like, excuse me, do you know where the restroom is? I, that's what I think I sound like. I think like I sound like an adult, like, excuse me, do you know where the restroom <clears> is? But really what comes out is, 
oh, excuse me, sir, I have to go pee-pee. Like, that's, right. <laughs> those are my words. Like, cause, so they know there's something up with me because I don't speak Arabic the way they speak Arabic. That's funny because my mother's from Argentina, and I've been to Argentina oh, wow. four times. Wow. Wow. And I don't speak very much. I, don't, I, I barely speak any Spanish whatsoever. But um, the, the, you know, the words that I know, I keep saying over and over, like, fantastico. And, like, I thought about it <laughs> afterwards. Like, if someone came to America and they had the same vocabulary, I would think, that guy's an idiot. Yeah, exactly. You know, all he can say is fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. Magnificent. <laughs> magnificent. I like. I don't like. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. That's it. Exactly. But you can hold conversations yeah. with people in Arabic. Yeah. It's like an Argentinian Teddy Ruxpin. <laughs> Just pull the string. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I could have conversations for sure, but they definitely looked at me differently. And we, de we definitely looked at things differently. There's a lot of anger in the Middle East towards America. And I understand it, but here's what I'm used to. I'm used to when I'm in the Middle East, I defend America. When I'm in America, I defend the Middle East. Right. That's my role. That's what I did at family gatherings my whole childhood. When I was with Muslim relatives, if they said anything bad about Jewish people or Christian people, I'd, I'd say, hey, you, you can't say that. You know, there's people that I love that are that religion and don't say that in my presence. And then it would go the other way. So I kept, I developed a thick skin a little bit. I, you are the answer to world peace, brother. I, uh, I thought that when I met you. <laughs> but why do you say that? What makes you say that? Because you have, I can't uh, hate anybody? Well, I mean, well, you, you have this really sweet nature and you're so likable on stage. But also, I mean, you've got the, I mean, like Muslims and Jewish people aren't, you know, you don't think of them as... Um, <laughs> as, as Sexually as, compatible. <laughs> copulating. Yeah. yeah. Like and, I should come out like a mule, like sterile. <laughs> like when a horse and a donkey have sex, a mule. No, but it's like, it is possible. <laughs> it for, is, for, of course. For, yeah, for, for people to get along. It's yeah. actually common. There's a lot of, uh, it's not well, common, it was an exaggeration. Sephardic Jews are up in North Africa on the Moroccan side of the. Of yeah, no, what, now, and uh, Sephardic Jews were the ones that went around the Mediterranean, yeah, right? Exactly. Or is it only North Africa? North Africa and the Mediterranean. Too. Okay. Yeah, but they. I mean, there's. I've met rabbis who had Muslim dads. Talk about that. That's on another level. I can't even imagine. You know, to have your dad be Muslim and your and be a rabbi. Wow. That's gotta be weird. So, what was it like during the Egyptian Revolution? You were doing a show at the American University. American University in Cairo. And then at this uh, restaurant in Alexandria. Alexandria is supposed to be more conservative. But you know what it's like. Like you say this in a dive bar. Right? You go, what's the difference in one good bar and another bar? It could be one person that you met that night. Right. And you're like, this is the greatest bar. So Alexandria was not more conservative than Cairo because there was one guy in the audience that ruined Cairo for me. And it, Cairo was just different than I, I remember it. I remember Cairo being, I remember a lot of smiles. I and that would oh, and I liked seeing Egyptian people when I got there because they always had these huge smiles. And for me, it 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 made me feel it validated me saying Arabs are not like that. Arabs are not like that. You should see people in Egypt like they're so happy. You look at those smiles and you go, these are not mean people. These are not angry people, right? But then, then I get there and it's not the way it used to be. The smiles are gone. Um, I had a friend who came with me who wanted to see Egypt, so he came with me. And um, he'd had his camera in the taxi and the cab driver would be like, sir, please tell him to hide the camera. Well, they'll smash the windows in the cab. They'll steal the camera. It's like everybody's already looking at us. There were still like um, black smoke outside of burned out buildings. There were still smoking buildings when we were there. And um, there'd be pictures of the, you know, of, of a new leader on his way in. And there was just like red paint 
thrown all over like blood. And then one time we went to the pyramids is like, we said, Hey, we've got one day off in between shows. I feel bad that, you know, he traveled all this way. Let's go do some touristy stuff. And we got to the pyramids and just got attacked. I mean, cause there were no tourists. And we get there. Oh, it's like people trying to sell you shit. Yeah. Like, no, they're like, just, they want money. Well. So the people that normally. They're made, not even They're not shit. eating. They're, they're not eating. They're not out. making money. They're, you know, the people. So that's, that's the other crisis that happens with the revolution is a huge part of the Egyptian economy is tourism. And when tourism goes down, which it always does with things like that. I mean, there are people who went, you know, paycheck to paycheck with the money they made from tourists on a daily basis. So right, and there was that incident, I think it was, what, 10 years ago now, where all those tourist buses went to the pyramids mm. and um, these um, fanatics machine-gunned them, what, killed like 50, 60 people or something yeah. on a busload. It's absolutely That, that was a real tourism killer. Dude, it makes my head spin. It makes my head spin because I, I've been told that I have something in common with these people, <laughs> Right. But, but I, why? Why is it that the unit of measure with this insane behavior has to be your birthplace? Like, I've looked up statistics before. The most common birth sign of a serial killer is a Scorpio. But I don't... <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, because I was wow. really curious. So I, I looked this up and I go, what if, what if the unit of measure was just a little bit different? What if it was like some kind of butterfly effect from some time machine in the past and it wasn't about birthplace anymore? What if we looked for, like, a, a different unit of measure? Like, oh... What's an astrological sign of all these people that kill? What's a hair color? Uh, redheads are this. You know, that's what it feels like. Like for me, it's identity theft. Like I'm getting this bill, this social bill that I'm looking at going, I didn't make any of these charges. Why, why, do, I, why, do, why do I have to justify these things? I, don't, I have nothing in common with those people. I'm as blown away as anybody else is. But yet for some reason, and, and for me, I mean, dude, look at me. I, I mean, I look as American as I'm out by the side of hummus, right? That's my big joke. But I, I can't imagine what it's like for people with accents, you know? Right. Even people that aren't Arabic, that kind of look Arabic because racists aren't great at classifying people. Right. You know what I mean? It's just a... Yeah, like that moron in Wisconsin exactly. that went into the Sikh temple thinking he yeah. was shooting Muslim people. Exactly. It's just, it's just a super uncool... <clears throat> I hate it because I remember one time I was with my mom and this guy goes, hey, where are you from? Because she has an accent. And she goes, oh, I'm from Dallas, <laughs> which made me laugh. I thought it was funny, but then after I stopped and thought about it, and I said, "Hey, why'd you why'd you say that to the guy? That, why'd you say you were from Dallas?" And I thought she was gonna say, "Oh, I was just joking around," but she goes, I, "You never know if someone. I don't know if he's a friendly person or not friendly person." Right. And I'm like, I don't want my mom to worry about that. Like, we grew up in bad neighborhoods. That's the plight of the immigrant, right? You start in these really rough neighborhoods, and you get to go up the social ladder in a really unique way, like probably in a way that a lot of people don't get to go up that many rungs, but we did. And when she said that, it reminded me of when we used to live in East LA, but this time she's living in Huntington Beach. And I'm going, that's not fair. It's not fair for her to have to go back two rungs on a ladder. East LA is like really hardcore Mexican, right? When we were there, yeah, it was really... It was really tough. It's a lot better now, but we were... A lot of hipsters have moved over there now, Yeah, right? a little yeah. bit. Now, the bravest hipsters are there, <laughs> but not, not the normal ones yet. It's still like the early adopter hipsters are starting to get in, but it's still a little rough. So the lower economic Mexican people were racist towards you? They weren't racist towards us, but out, outside the neighborhood. Okay. Yeah, like I, a guy told my dad flat out one time. He had, my dad had to change his name to Michael from Muhammad because he there was a guy at Bank of America. My dad had like two degrees and spoke six languages. 
And the guy said, no, we're not going to hire you as a teller. And my dad said, you know, I've, I've been going a lot of these interviews. Can you please just tell me why? Maybe I can improve something on my resume. And the guy just looked my dad dead in the face and he goes, we don't hire Muslims. And my dad just looked at him and he, I think he was just so exhausted that he just stuck his hand out. He said, okay, thank you. And the guy like looked up at him and he goes, he's like, you want me to shake your hand? And he goes, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to stay professional even though this is hard for me. And then the guy hired him like a week later, which is really sweet of the guy. Like, I really think that was a nice moment that they had. But uh, it's hard. You know, it's really hard. Like, we, I used to get beat up at school when gas prices were talked about on the news. Really? Yeah. It was way before people were like, 9-11, <clears throat> after 9-11. It's your fault. Yeah. But back then, I mean, it wasn't, even before 9-11, it, I mean, Arabs have been demonized in films and TV. We've never had our Cosby show, right? Right. Like, the way people <clears throat> perceived black America was a lot different after the Cosby show. The first, you know, forget you know current yeah, years, yeah 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 right yeah, yeah a lot different like the, there was another there was another like point to look at in the field there you know we had movies about gangs and all this stuff and, and then all of a sudden the Cosby Show came out and it was like a real family and it, it and it was it it balanced out the equation a little bit and I think for Arabs there hasn't been a counterbalance yet it's just been who are the heroes that these kids are growing up to see there's there's none I watched the movie The Black Stallion twenty five times. And my mom's like, why do you keep watching this movie? You don't even like big dogs. And I'm like, because the horse is a hero. And for once in an American movie, the hero's Arabian. Like a horse was the closest thing like I had <laughs> to like something, you know? <laughs> it, whenever you think it can't get worse for, for uh, mm -hmm. discrimination against Muslim people, you know, the, the Paris shootings were mm -hmm. last month. And then yesterday was the... That San Bernardino yeah. shooting, yeah, and uh, you know the the husband and wife, yeah, going on an uh, apocalyptic suicide mission, and the guy was he worked for what the county yeah. for the for the health commission, yeah. I mean that's not going to help future of employment not. of yeah. of course not uh, your normal Muslim person and yeah, uh, yeah. trying it's, to work his way up the economic ladder. Yeah, it's a weird thing. It's a really weird thing, and I I feel more scared. I'm not Muslim. I'm not even Muslim. I'm just a brown guy that would not let someone say something about Muslims that was racist without saying something about it. I mean, that's the way, I mean, that's the way I'd be easily identified, right? Like I wouldn't, it's just a scary time because I, I, I ask myself sometimes, if you were white, would you be racist towards Muslims? I, I can't answer no. I don't know. Maybe I would be a little bit. Maybe I would, you know. Well, you know, I mean, I'm, I, I'm fortunate I've lived around the world, sure. traveled the world. Absolutely. You know, uh, I was in love with a Muslim girl for a short period when I lived in Holland. And uh, I've got loads of Muslim friends in the States and sure. Europe and Asia. And and so I think I'm the exception to your normal American. No, and you know I, what I'm saying? I think, but I think like the my, exception my, is the racist. My, yeah. uh, I don't think so. I don't yeah. know. I, I, I think... Because the, the constant pounding through the news media yeah. of yeah. just this fear of sleeper cells and the lone wolf. And now it's this husband and wife yeah. fucking team Scary. goes in and shoots people down. I worry about the normal white American who hasn't traveled yeah. like me. Exactly. And who doesn't have, you know, Muslim friends or... Yeah. Uh, have had love stories with uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, Muslim people, yeah. you know? Yeah, uh, and And all they get is, you know, the hate news of Rush Limbaugh and Fox News and everything. Yeah, yeah, it's scary. It's really scary.
Because, you know, in the 80s, all the movies, the, the, the enemy was always the Russians. Yeah. Because, you know, we had the Cold War and, you know, in all the movies, the, the, the bad guy was always Russian. Yeah. Now the bad guy's always... Exactly. <laughs> he is. Always, always got there. a long beard and he's Muslim. Yeah, yeah. So this must be great for comedy. It, you know, it's, it's funny. <laughs> One of my friends asked me, he goes, when did you become a political comic? I go, I didn't pick political comedy. It picked me. Like, it totally... How could I not? I, I'd feel, I felt like such a shell of myself if I didn't talk about it. Because it was the thing that most affected me. You know, like, when, when my dad had cancer, I used to go with him to chemo. And there was a black man that used to sit with us all the time because he, he liked to tell me jokes. And so we'd, we'd sit around and we'd tell jokes, we'd hang out, and then my dad died. And I kept going, and I'd meet this guy. And he came up to me and he goes, man, you and your dad got me fucked up. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, I don't know what I am anymore. And I'm like, how do you mean? He goes, well, all my life, when I call myself an African-American and I'd see another African-American, we had shared misery. So we had this really tight connection. So I always was African-American, African-American. He's on, then I get cancer and the people I feel closest to that get me and get my misery the most are you and your dad. He's like, so now I feel like a cancer American. Wow. And I was like, wow, that's wow, a really that's profound statement, you know? And it makes me just go, well, the shared misery is such a big, powerful, powerful thing. Wow, that's yeah. really heavy, man. Because my, my sister died of breast cancer in 2011. Wow. And for four and a half years, she went to the chemo. Wow. And I went with her for five times. And cancer really kind of became her identity. Yeah. You know, because she was a survivor. Yeah. And then she spoke to young girls who got cancer and like, that, that's that's a really profound statement the guy made. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah, I remember somebody said uh, they were talking about surgery, and uh, the guy said everyone's the same height when you're uh, under the knife. Wow, because you're lying down. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. So should we talk about happier topics? Now? Sure. So you, congratulations, you won the World Series of Comedy. Thank you. Thank That's like you. a really big deal in America now. I didn't know it was as big of a deal as it was, and and but I'm really happy. Like thousands and thousands of comedians. No, not thousands. I think there's almost 500. Well, but I think they they, they select the 500. Yeah, correct. There's thousands that try and get in it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and and you won the whole thing this year. I did. Yeah. And it's in Las Vegas. Yeah, well, it starts throughout the year. Like, it starts, like, in all these different states. I think it was, like, in 12 different states that had different satellite competitions. And you have to win those to qualify for the finals. And then they have another drawing in the finals. But I won. I did three satellites, and I got two first places and one second place. So I was, like, I went in with heat. So is there, is there, is there like, a, uh, like a playoffs at the, in, in, in Vegas? Yeah. Yeah. But in the playoffs, I kind of got knocked down. I didn't have the greatest set my first set. And I got second place instead of first place. So then the next two rounds, I had to take the bullet both times. <laughs> but then I got into the finals with just myself and two other comics. And uh, that one, that one was better. I got to go second. I didn't have to go first again, which was a nightmare for me. That was really... <laughs> Tom is making coffee right now. I'm breaking, I'm breaking, I'm breaking his cover. <laughs> so where was the... Where was the big finals? The finals was Vegas. But yeah. where? Uh, at this, the Tuscany Hotel Resort Casino. Think of it, Bob. And so now what happens? You got a, uh, you got a, you got a convertible Corvette. <laughs> you got uh, the keys to I wish. Uh, Las Vegas. I and wish. you took uh, photos with some bikini women. Yeah, oh, the only one is trees bikini women. <laughs> <laughs> but girls that wear bikinis at night, not during the day. I'm a worse person than that. No, I got, I got, what I got out of it was that, 
it was immediate was uh, tons of bookings. I got basically you win 50 weeks of paid feature work. So they booked that all for next year. No, I have to book it. So I have to, you know, work with the veils of the clubs and stuff. But it's been, you know, it's been really good. I went from having my calendar booked a month in advance to having it booked seven months in advance. And, and a lot of the clubs have seen me before or saw me during the satellite and got to see me again at the finals. So some of the clubs gave me headline spots, which has been great. So it's been good. It kind of kick-started my road career. Since I kind of started my comedy career in London. And so I, I just got back to yeah, LA. you got such a fascinating uh, and you lived in, you lived in Australia you lived in Sweden once didn't you yeah yeah, yeah. well those so, were like different like one Sweden when I was a student Australia when I was in advertising and then I started comedy when I was forty what a life yeah what a I mean you you've you've lived a lot of different I mean oh, you thanks. and I are we're close to the same age yeah you know so I mean there's not many people that I think. That I could relate to. Me too. Uh, That's what I thought when I walked in your place. You know, you got, you know, you you didn't like stay in one place. Not not that there's anything wrong with that, you know, for people, but um, just you got a lot of life experience and a lot of, you know, you've lived in different corners of the world and stuff. Oh, the one last thing about the, I wanted to ask you about the Egyptian revolution. Did you go to the, the, to hear square when all that was going on? No, no. It was, it was after that part had died down. Okay. But yeah, it was, that was the one that was what I was leading to. I oh, forgot. yeah. No, no, not during that. It was maybe two months after. Okay. But I mean, there were still like tanks in the street and checkpoints and it wasn't there were still basically what was happening. This is so interesting. The bombings would happen on Fridays. They'd be like, you know, get ready because Fridays when the like one night I said, hey, should we what was that? What was that sound? And they go, oh, no, don't worry. It's Wednesday. And I'm like, what do you mean? And they go, the terrorist attack happens, the terrorist stuff happens on Fridays because they, they get off work. And I'm like, what? Like, that's, that's how, that's how much it became a part of the, it's almost like it, it's like a leech that enters somebody else's bloodstream and then starts to become part of the system. Do you know what I mean? It was the craziest thing. And I was like, it doesn't, but it was just bizarre. Like how scheduling it into society. And how quickly the kids adapted to expecting bombs hearing bombs like it was so quick it was like because i wasn't used to it but they were i mean if they heard bombs pipe bombs here or there they'd be like oh that's a pipe bomb and i'm like what do you mean well, oh, they can just dig it by the sound they yeah. can tell, tell what kind of yeah. bomb it is it's crazy wow yeah and they're not that old these are like young egyptian kids these aren't egyptians that have been there through the old wars these are like new kids that didn't grow up with any of this stuff you know and and they, they know a lot about about war and death and they know too much, you know, for really young kids. Do you think you'll go back to Egypt? No, never in a million years. Because, you know, I think it's interesting. And, and you know, uh, when I first wanted to go to Argentina and a lot of children of immigrants that I've, I've, I've talked to, uh, a lot of the, heard the same thing. Like the parents were like, you don't want to go back. Yeah. You know, it, it took a lot for us to get out of there. Yeah. Just leave that, leave that in the past. Yeah, exactly. You know, but I wanted to get in touch with my, my, my roots. Sure. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's a weird See thing. why I'm so damn sexy. <laughs> <laughs> it's a strange thing. Like how yeah. it calls you back. It's animalistic, you know, that, that you get this calling to right. go back. But like you were saying about Egypt, you know, I go there and it's like, you know, I spent my whole life wanting to go there and I go there and go like, Okay, boy, I'm 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 really American. Yeah, yeah, I'm way more American than I thought. And I mean, I've I've always I mean, I've always loved. I've never had identity issues that way. 
I've always knew, like once we got to America, I'm like, this was, it became home really quickly. There's so many fascinating things about ancient Egypt. Yeah. Uh, like they loved cats so much. There was yeah. an invading army that came in with cats and they had knives. Oh my God. And they no were way. like, they were threatening to, uh, <laughs> they were going to, they were going to, they were threatening to kill the cats and, and the Egyptian army like surrendered. No way. Yeah. And, uh, uh, the ancient Egyptians were the first ones to ever have billboards. Wow. Uh, and they were, um, some of them were, um, for, uh, baldness cures you know you just blew my mind right now because you know that story you just told about the cats yeah i've never heard that story before really but one story that i heard from my dad is that when there was there was war between israel and egypt that there was one particular battalion from israel that had taken bedouin people in the desert like tribal people and strapped them to the front of their tanks as human shields and then would shoot at the Egyptian army. And when the Egyptian army went, like, they're like, oh my God, we can't shoot back because we'll be killing Bedouins. Right. So it's, it's almost like, it's so analogous to like holding the cat and holding a knife. To right. It. Like if you, you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's pretty wild. Like I, cause I've never heard that story before, but it reminds me of that crazy story that my dad told me. Wow. Yeah. It's pretty wild. War is really ugly. <laughs> yeah. It's such, it's such a gnarly thing. Yeah. yeah. And, um, it's it, it, it the the world just seems to get nastier and nastier. Yeah, you know? it's that, so weird. The Paris slaughter was uh, a Insane. new level of fucked upness. Yeah, because <clears throat> it was just people enjoying life. Yeah, exactly. You know? It's just it's just so. You know, I was reading this book called Sapiens. It's about like the history of humankind, and the question that like the part of the book that I always remember when I'm seeing this stuff on the news is that. When other animals became top of the food chain, like lions and sharks, it took a long time. So the ecosystem had a chance to create all these checks and balances so that those top of the food chain animals wouldn't devastate the planet. So like when a lion got became alpha, then the rhinoceros got a little bit grumpier and the gazelle got a little bit faster and, and a hyena became a little bit more cooperative and they all blend, they all grew together. But we were middle of the food chain and then we created fire and tools and then we went from middle to top of the food chain. But we didn't, the ecosystem didn't have time to create checks and balances. So we're totally devastating the planet. And then the, like the, the other thing you said that blew me away is that like sharks and lions are majestic. Like they're confident leaders. Right. But we're scared. Because even though we're sitting at the top of the food chain, we got there artificially with tools. So we're like, we're the worst top of the food chain animal because we're scared. And that's what this whole thing is now. That I, get, I get most afraid when I see scared anger, scared anger to me is the worst kind of anger. It's like, that's, that's like where Nazis came from. Scared anger. That stuff terrifies me. You know, I think that's the worst in humanity is when we're like fearful and simultaneously angry, like yeah. getting beat up by a guy that's crying. Like that's terrifying. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Have you ever had that happen? I had that happen to me once. A guy crying beat you up? He was punching me in the face, but he was so emotional that he was crying when he was punching me in the face. <laughs> Like, man, I had nightmares for like the longest time. What was that, when you were a kid? Or? I was like, I, I fought a lot when I was a kid. I was a, I went in to, East LA. I in East LA, to. yeah. And we all, you know, we all took boxing classes and stuff. And this kid just... Really? I boxed when I was younger. Did you? Yeah, yeah I heard you that. You have so much in common. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember I heard that in your 
you were junior gold gloves or something. Yeah. Was that one of your yeah. jokes? Yeah, 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 yeah. Junior gold gloves when I was like 13. Yeah. Yeah. I had one fight and he came in second. Yeah. I remember that bit. <laughs> That's great. That made me laugh. Yeah, it's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, that we both did boxing, man. Yeah. I, for two seconds, thought I could be uh, heavyweight champion of the world. Oh, shit. Well, then you did a lot more than me. <laughs> we had a lot no, more confidence. You start anything. Like sure. when you're, you're playing Little League Baseball. Man, I'll be in the major leagues one yeah. day, you know? That's what's awesome about being a kid. Like a lot of people are like, oh, you have to learn to surf when you're a kid. And I'm like, Why? Did you have more balance or more coordination and more strength? No, you didn't. Just when you were a kid, you believed. Yeah. Like, I can become the champion, you know, world champion surfer. What else are you afraid of? Besides, uh, uh, when you say what else, what are you referring to first? You said you were Terror- afraid of... Uh, terrorism and all that stuff? No, 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 no. You said you were scared afraid anger. of scared anger. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I'm afraid of, uh, probably, if I'm being honest, probably dying alone. That's the first thing. I have this I have this strange fear that I'm going to become a homeless person. Why would you think that? Um, I take I I do tend to take like when I take risks I take big risks you know like when it comes to career and stuff right and then I I become friends with these homeless guys like I talk to homeless guys a lot and because when we first got here I lived in Hollywood so when I was a kid I didn't you know I didn't make friends really easily in the beginning because I had this weird accent and weird clothes and an afro and so I started ever since I was a kid I talked to homeless people. And so I still speak to them now. And, and I started going, the more I speak to them, the more I realize the only difference between me and them is support system. Like he just had a worse mom than me or a worse dad than me. That's it. But they're not, you know, and then the, it's the street that makes you go crazy. Like living that, they de-evolve. You know, it's like backwards Tarzan. You know what I mean? Right. Like you go from civilized to Tarzan and all of them carry weapons. All of them, there's little cultural things that they do too that are like a big part of the street. And so when I, when my brain started to like, like in, in small words go, the different, the only difference between you and a homeless guy is support system. And the only living relative I have left is my mom. Like everybody else, just because of the religious strife and, you know, family not getting along with each other, that's it. All I have is my mom. I don't have anybody else. So I always go, and I'm really bad at dating because I was abused when I was a kid and stuff by my dad. And so it makes it hard for me to like, like physically abusive? Yeah, exactly. Physically. And so, you know, it makes it hard for me to connect with relationships. So my biggest fear is definitely like oh, dying alone. That would oh. be weird. Um, you just for some reason reminded me of this homeless guy. While I lived in, I, you know, I, I, I like talking to homeless people too. Mm-hmm. And um, I used to be a lot more generous. I guess now... I'm married. I guess I'm more conscious of money or something. But you're blaming it on her. No, 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 no. No, like no, no. But I used to. I used to. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say piss away, but I used to be like very. Gen- I remember one time in London, this guy because where I would stay with my friend lived on Fitzroy Square, and I would walk to the uh, comedy store every night. And I met this guy, and he was a heroin addict. I gave him money a few times, and then he and he was telling me he was from Liverpool, and and I I talked to him more and more. Because I would always see him on this this little tiny park between Fitzroy Square and uh, Leicester Square. And I got to know the guy a little bit. And then he told me about how he was such a disappointment to his family he could never go home. Whoa. And I told him, I, I said, I don't God. believe that, man. I bet they I bet they miss you. Yeah. And I, I gave him a hundred pounds, which is a lot of money. Yeah. And I and I said, I, I want you to use this money to try and get home. See what it's like. That's see, super you know. kind of you. That's really nice. But the, the thing that it reminded me. You're talking about talking to homeless people. There was this guy 
from Warsaw, Poland. He was homeless in Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. A really interesting guy. And he played a two-string banjo. <laughs> there's, there's a there's a, a tunnel that goes through the Rijksmuseum. Awesome. And <clears throat> it has this great echo. Yeah. And so he would play and he That's would awesome. sing. And so, like, I talked to him. Actually, I met him. There was an anti-war protest when the Iraq war started. And I met him because he was singing a, a song about George Bush. And then I would buy some beer and go sit and talk with the guy. And I got to know him. And he was called to Amsterdam on a holy mission. God had told him that the reason there's war and unhappiness in the world is because not enough people have goldfish. Oh, God. And not enough people spend time looking at goldfish and and pondering on goldfish. So... what if it was a text from God and that was autocorrect, but it really was God? <laughs> it really was God, but stupid autocorrect turned this guy into an insane person instead of Moses. But he wasn't. I mean, yeah. but so so this was his mission. <laughs> God had called him to Amsterdam on a holy mission. Yeah. It was his mission to drain the canals of Amsterdam, oh fill them with fresh water, <laughs> and put goldfish in all the canals of Amsterdam. Oh, my God. So, I mean, imagine how beautiful that would be. Oh, yeah. If the canals of Amsterdam were filled with fresh water and goldfish. <laughs> I don't know how he was going to pull this off yeah. being a homeless guy. Yeah. But I would, like, go drink with him and and and, uh, and talk to him. And uh, he made me the general of the goldfish project because wow. he said, I, I, I know you can help me get the word out. Yeah. So That's amazing. Yeah. So what's the most interesting uh, homeless person uh, knowledge nugget you... Oh, man. <laughs> There's a guy named George that uh, he said... I saw him one time. He was wearing sunglasses. And I go, how's it going, George? And he, he does this really sweet thing. Every time I see him, he takes the sunglasses off to, to make eye contact with me. Or so I can see his eyes. And Because he told me once, he goes, I don't mind when people don't give me money. I mind when people don't look at me. And ever since then, I don't always give homeless people money, but I I don't ignore them. Like, I think that's super unhealthy Yeah. to have someone feel like they're invisible, like they don't exist, like when you're, they're talking to you and you're, and I know it's like, it's uncomfortable for us, but it's super unhealthy for them. So George is sitting outside my street and I go, hey, George, how's it going? And I, I could just tell him the way that he moved. He took his sunglasses off and then went to put him back on and then like, and then I saw a black eye and I go, you okay? How, how, how are you? And he just looks up at me and he goes, you know what? There's still more good people than bad people. And that just, it just like, it made my legs weak. Like, here's this guy who's got to be in his like late 50s. He's got a black eye. He's sitting in the street. And that's, that's what he says. There's still more good people than bad people. Like, that's the perspective. Yeah. That's kind of like what Anne Frank said right? in, her, in, her, in the diaries, is that she still believed in the good of all people. You have to. Because there's more of us than there are of them. Like there's this old Arabic saying that says, the caravan, no matter how much the dogs bark, the caravan moves on. And I think that like right now, humanity is evolving. We're just not looking at it because the news is all about ratings now. But really, we are evolving as a species. It's not just the rights of gay marriage in America or in particular states. It's happening all over, all over Europe. The Arab Spring, even though it's a violent thing, Sometimes violent things lead to good things. And it's the first time that I've seen young people in the Middle East stand up to older people, to, to rock. This the Arab Spring seemed like a real magic thing was about it, to yeah, happen. It was I almost agree. like 
you're old enough to remember when the the Tiananmen Square, the oh, yeah. China, that seemed like, oh my God, this yeah. beautiful thing is happening in yeah. China, and then it was crushed. Yeah, you know, yeah. and then the 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 Arab Spring seemed like, uh, I don't know, it it, it seemed like a, a a new consciousness was yeah. was taking over the the Middle East, and they were about to get rid of all these uh, hardline totalitarian leaders. Yeah, what happened? You know, I think that there's a lot of systems that have been in place over there. You know, like in the in the Middle East, here's the crazy thing that a lot of people don't know about the demographics of the Middle East. Like, remember the baby boomers who changed so much? Like, baby boomers have changed every life stage they've entered in America. They've changed what it meant to be a young person, what it meant to be middle-aged, what it means to be old. Now, old people are completely different than they used to be ever since the baby boomers. Right now, the biggest portion of the population in the Middle East is under 30. They they have a they have a, a youth bubble that they've never had before, and in the Middle East you've always been taught to do what you're told, right? You always do what you're told. This is the first time that young people aren't doing what they're told. That's a very Western behavior. We've never had that in the Middle East. Even during the strikes, they asked the vice president what would he do if the students didn't leave Tahrir Square, and he said, "I'll call their parents." <laughs> on the, to a newspaper he said that. that's how that's how much he believes they will do what their parents say I just pictured everybody's mom coming and grabbing them by the ear and pulling them out yeah yeah but it's changing because we're the internet has changed everything you know like they're starting to see other, youth is a nationality too you can be an Arab but if you're a young Arab you see it all the time in airports. There'll be a little German kid and a little Japanese kid, and they'll walk towards each other and away from the German and Japanese counterparts because they're going, hey, you're like me. So youth is another nationality, and I think young people there, they're, they're, they're it. Once they decide, they're a sleeping giant. That's a big sleeping giant that's very, very open to Western ways of living. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens. So... If you've lived all over, is your, does your mom live in Los Angeles? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Huntington, Huntington Beach. Yeah. Huntington Beach. Oh, yeah. swanky. I don't know why I pointed. Like, like I'm an Eagle Scout. You pointed west. <laughs> Did I really? Yeah. I don't even know. I always, I always point to the right because when I point to the left, it looks gay. <laughs> my left arm is so, this is my straight arm. This is my gay arm. Because I was going to ask you, if you've lived all over the world, why would you move back to Los Angeles? But if your mom yeah. is here, that answers that. Well, um, I love LA too. I really do. Like, you know how people say in certain towns, they'll be like, this is a great place to visit, but I wouldn't want to live here? Yeah. LA's the other way. It's a great place to live, but I wouldn't want to visit. Like, you, once you get to really know LA, and you have to sort of be a Sherpa a little bit, like, once you really start to get to know it, you, it's, like a, it's like a good buffet. Like, there's not a lot of those, but if you find a good buffet, I mean, what's on your plate is your, you know, it's win or, win or lose, it's your fault. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I even, I'm even avoiding traffic now. Like, I haven't hit traffic in ages. I know how to get around the town. I've got... Well, this is my third time living here. Yeah. So this time is like the the three bears porridge is just awesome. right. Awesome. That's great. I love where I live. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I, this is such a great part of town. And then also I've got, you know, the love of my life. So I think that that's also awesome. kind of makes it a lot of... But I'm loving sure. Los Angeles now. Yeah, that's great. And the fact that... I've had this full life of traveling the world and living in all these different places. I think, I mean, now I'm, 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 I'm older and yeah. I can appreciate it. The, um, I mean, there's so much ethnicity here. Yes, exactly. I mean, that's my I favorite thing about Los Angeles. I love it. It just like just food and yeah. people and, uh, you know, the whole world is, uh, like you said, it's a buffet here. Yeah. 
I get most comfortable when the more diverse a city is, the more comfortable I am. Because I think of it, I think of like cultures almost like DNA. If there's too much of one kind, yeah, weird things are going to happen. You're going to have like kids with six fingers. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. we, you can't you can't mash up the same DNA too much at, without it starting to have weird effects on the community. I like diversity. It makes me feel safer. It makes me feel like it's a it's a good place for me to exhale. Yeah, ironically, like a lot of people look at LA as a stressful city. Yeah. For me, it I get so chilled out the minute I get here. It's super mellow to me because it's so familiar. Yeah. yeah. Well, I always say my favorite kind of audience is multi-ethnic and multinational. Yeah. Me too. So, um, you know, like an all white Midwestern audience is, uh, that definitely makes me feel uncomfortable. So, sure. So, yeah, I guess that uh, the audience of Los Angeles uh, yeah. makes me feel good. Yeah, me too. What is the, uh, what's the best thing you learned about living in Sweden? Oh, man. Sweden is, it's, it's, a, it's a much smaller place, right? You've only got 9 million people or something, or maybe 11 million now, something like that. But, man, when people cooperate, they can do amazing things. I mean, amazing things, especially from everything is like for me is from the context of Egypt, right? Egypt's got like almost 90 million people. So, um, you know, nine times more than Sweden does. But name an Egyptian product. You can't name an Egyptian athlete. You can't, you know, but if you Sweden, it's like Saab, Volvo, Ikea, H&M. You know, and it just goes on and on like Bjorn this. Borg. Bjorn Borg. <laughs> and then you get into golf and then you get into baseball and then you get it's crazy basketball. So it's like. It's such a tiny country and such a powerhouse when it comes to people cooperating with each other. And, and it's, it's also kind of an atheist country for the most part. You know, like people, people get married there so rarely that there's this thing there called Sambo, same living. So if you have a Swedish girlfriend, you can get a, 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 a residency visa, not, not just a work one, where you can stay. And I, and I stayed for a while just because I had a girlfriend. We broke up, but she, she wanted me to stay in Sweden. So we just went and worked it out with the consulate. And it was easy and i just i i feel like it's a it's a really good place it's got problems too sweden's got problems too i wish it was a little bit less homogenous but i it just felt so safe in sweden i only <clears throat> i only went i went to stockholm for like two days mm. i was in and out i did this um raw oh yeah the hotel show. yeah the hilton actually it was in a big theater they filmed oh. they filmed it for uh swedish television oh wow yeah it was great was like it with sony sweden yeah, produced it. it it's a first, great show. It was fantastic. It's in a. Um, is it the guy, the good-looking blonde-haired guy? It's obviously, sweet. he used to be a porn uh, star. Magnus Andreas. Yeah, he used to be guy. a porn star. Did he really? In Sweden. Wow. Yeah, he was a porn star. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. He does, he does raw comedy. It's in. Um, wow, from porn to comedy. Yeah, there's, uh, there's a guy who doesn't like to work. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's a lot of that now. I had, I had gone there. It was my father. He was hit by a drunk driver. He was in the hospital for six months. Then he got out. He was still really weak, and then he got pneumonia and died. Oh, so gosh. it was the the drunk driver that that killed him. Sure. And so he died. I was in Zurich, and I thought I was going to have to cancel my trip to Sweden. I actually had to pay like a thousand bucks to change the the plane ticket because wow. I was I was gonna I was gonna go to Sweden. I was gonna travel around for like ten days and then do the show. That was my plan. Yeah. And then I had to change it for to make it back in time for the funeral um and so i only got i was only there for for a couple days unfortunately it's cool when you were in stockholm we in gothenburg we call them yavla no lotter which means fucking oh eighters 
What's so, the area code to Stockholm? Is really? Eight, so we call them fucking elevators. <laughs> so you got it like a very like it's almost like coming to America and only going to New York, which is good. I mean, it's you saw arguably the best part, but there's it's such a cool place. Like you know the phrase "Let's go Dutch." Right. Yeah, I lived in Holland. Of course yeah. you do. So, it, you know, Scandinavian <clears throat> culture, like in Sweden, the guys just don't do as much for girls. Like I was opening doors and the girls would go crazy over it. Like this was when I was in college. No, know? when I when I lived in Holland, uh, well, oh, yeah, the, you the, totally. the, uh, women loved that because I'm yeah. from the South. Oh, that's and I, right. I yeah. opened the door. I opened doors for women. Yeah, me too. And, uh, and, 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 and girls I went on dates with would go nuts for them. Yeah, exactly. Dutch guys never do this. <laughs> so like what? It's just like a natural instinct. Yeah. But then the thing about the paying Dutch where the girl pays for her half of the date, I never realized what sexual liberation that is. Exactly. That they don't feel the pressure to like kiss a guy or have sex with him at the end of the date because exactly. they paid for, for half. I, I, I went on so many dates in Holland where I watched the girl ride her bike away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you're not coming up? <laughs> yeah. I've had it happen where a girl would have sex with me and then she'd start to leave. And I go, I go, hey, can I get your number? <laughs> she's like leaving me. Like, and she's like, well, I didn't know if you were going to, if you wanted to see me again or not. I thought you were, this is amazing. I thought you were going to say she made you pay for uh, half the condom that she bought. That, that'd, that'd be $1.75. What? <laughs> for me, it was phenomenal too, because I feel like I'm a can of Coors Light. And in Sweden, I was at import, and that can of Coors Light was worth like $8, and here it was 3 Oh, hilarious. Oh, man, I was dating some really hot girls, man. I was dating the pretty, so many beautiful girls, because I was so exotic to them. <laughs> wow. And so, and then you, you lived in Sydney, Australia, and you were yeah. in marketing? Advertising. Yeah. Advertising. I worked in advertising like 22 years or something like that. Unbelievable. Yeah, That must time. have been. Sydney's one of my favorite cities in it's the world. beautiful. Yeah, I love it. What was your big takeaway from, uh, from, from Australia? You know what's funny? I, I, I hate I mean, to I say the, this. The people are beautiful and they are. polite. Definitely, they are. They I absolutely love Australians. Are. It's so, the one thing that bummed me out is that, and I, as a traveler, you'll totally get this. It was disappointingly unexotic. The first time I went to Australia, I wanted it to be so different than America. Right. But I got so comfortable so fast. It just, it felt like I was in Orange County, you know? But the people are amazing and wonderful. The drugs are terrible and expensive. <laughs> the um I, it was different as a brown guy i'll tell you that different as a brown harder for me to meet girls in australia than it was in other places a little bit really uh, yeah you know they have that phrase out there wog yeah and that's like say, everyone is a foreign everyone who's brown yeah. everyone who's brown yeah. is a wog <laughs> i was like well, which part of me is the wog is it the egyptian part or the greek part they're like oh no both and i'm like but you just called Jerome Wog, he's Italian. They're like, yeah, that's Wog too. And I'm like, how's everything Wog? How are all of us are the same? This is the worst kind of racism. <laughs> I thought it was when they call English people palms. And I would ask yeah. all these Australians, why do you call them palms? And they, oh, I don't know. It's just the expression's been around. So yeah. the English people are palms and anyone else who's a foreigner is a Wog. Yeah. Uh, and, and then I, I was in China earlier this year in May in Guangzhou. Oh, wow. And there was a Australia older guy, and I asked him, and he said it was because uh, when English people get sunburned, they're the color of pomegranates. No way. And that that's where the name... That's really that's funny. That's where palm comes from. Wow. I was like, wow. I hugged wow. the guy. I go, thank you. I asked, <laughs> you know, 900 Australians, and none of them could answer that, that's that question. Funny. Yeah. 
what other uh, what other interesting knowledge nuggets of uh, world knowledge culture nuggets. have you learned? I'm scared right now, Tom. Are you? Yeah, I am. I'm a little nervous about the way things are going. Oh, you know, like with the world yeah. right now, and it sucks. It, it sucks how much it affects you. Like I heard this guy use this phrase, emotional contagions. It's a really interesting way of thinking about your mood. Like you wake up in the morning, you're in a good mood. And then you, and some guy bumps you in the shoulder and doesn't say sorry. And you're like, hey, he's like, F you. And you're like, F you. And then it's almost like he sneezed on you. And now he was in a bad mood. You were in a good mood. But now you're in a bad mood too. It's almost like he touched you. And it's like tag. And then you affect someone else. And it affects. And at the end of the day, it's like these checks and balances between your good moods and bad moods. And I just started thinking about that emotional contagion in my head. And to think about like these events, the way that they work. Like Fox News has become a huge recruitment tool. Because Fox News talks so much trash about our own president and our own White House and our own government, like anything. That, and then <clears throat> the terrorists use it to recruit people yeah. because they've got guys on the news saying, we're getting our asses kicked. And, and then they, they use it to recruit more terrorists. So I just, the cycle's got to break at some point. It's just, it's just a, it's a scary freaking time. <laughs> I read a, 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 some editorial thing a year or two ago that, that that Fox News was so critical of President Obama that the Russian nightly news took mm-hmm. hunks of, of what they said and read it on the news of, exactly. of, of uh, how badly he's fucking yeah. up America and yeah. stuff. It's not so it's like the Fox News is creating the propaganda yeah. that other countries and uh, radicals are, are, are using against us ultimately. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, even even a lot of the Republican candidates have actually uh, had meetings and been approved by people that are on record have gone in and for, have had violent crimes with abortion clinics. And then all of a sudden, a couple of weeks later, abortion clinic gets shot up. I, I'm starting to blame Fox News now because there's just it's just happening. To, there's so much damage that they're doing. It's just it's not right. I mean, when do we stop? The voting, we have to believe in the voting. Everybody loves to say, this guy's a socialist, that guy's a socialist, Obama's a Marxist and all this stuff. You know what's un-American, you know what's not democratic? Is not respecting the voting process. If you believe in democracy, if you're, so, if you're such an American, you're such a staunch American, then you need to respect the fact that America picked Obama. And you need to respect the office and understand that when you talk crap about Obama, you're talking crap about America. And when you do that over a broadcast channel, our enemies are using that to recruit more people to come after us because they think they're winning the fight. Yeah, well, I've always thought that, I almost say my brother, I, I like to say my family, but my brother, John, is uh, a really hardline Republican guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had an incident with him earlier this year where um, the Charleston shootings really affected me and the yeah. fact that those people forgave that guy. Yeah. And like, and it just all this this hate and this rhetoric and all this stuff that, that I, I, you know, I, I, I told my brother that, you know, I, I realized that my family's my political party. We've spent too much time arguing about political stuff. Yeah. Uh, that really doesn't matter ultimately. Yeah. And he responded by violently punching me in the chest oh. and saying that you voted for Obama and Obama's ruining this country. So there's just some people you're not going to change. Yeah. And, um, the, the thing about like Fox News and all this propaganda, these really hardline Republican people, the country they belong in is Saudi Arabia. Agreed. If you want a one-party country, yeah. 
that there's no debate and that, uh, you know, women are, are, are less equal and have no rights. Saudi Arabia is where you belong. Yeah. So uh, I, I agree with what you're saying about that they do a disservice to democracy. But yeah. I actually think they should wake up and realize that this is the wrong country for them. Yeah, I, I totally <laughs> you know, agree. If you really are that staunchly, uh, you know, f- for having your way and no yeah. uh, political discourse and open conversation yeah. about how to improve our society and your hard line uh, is the only uh, voice yeah. that can be heard, uh, this is not your country. I totally agree. I totally agree. It's so it's so un-American. It's the most un-American thing that you can do, in my opinion. Right, know? and then all this like backlash against immigrants and stuff. Yeah. One of those Republican candidates said we should tag uh, illegal Mexican yeah. immigrants like uh, wildlife animals yeah. so we can track them. Yeah, and I'm 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 waiting for Trump said that we should track all these all Muslim the Muslims people too, in the country. Yeah. You know, getting the computer chip in the head yeah. conspiracy. But I mean, that might be the answer for some of these Republican yeah. people. It's true. Any, 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 yeah. any brown foreigner or someone with a different belief yeah. is going to get tagged yeah. and tracked like a yeah. wild animal. And the hypocrisy is through the roof. I mean, when Obama wanted to have national health care, yeah. you'd think something to benefit the great... You can't be more Christian than that, yeah. right? That's a Christian thing to do, yeah. have national health care. They started calling him a communist and a socialist. And then their candidates say, we want to tag people and they don't use the word Nazi. Right. Like they called Obama, there were pictures of Obama with a Hitler mustache and they were calling him a Nazi because he wanted national health care. Now there's a guy who's, how much, how much closer can you get to an actual Nazi than tagging people based on race and religion? Right. It's the actual definition and not one word. For, it's just insane. But I think it's, it's I, I think it all started with the whole Kennedy Nixon thing. Once people started using TV as a medium, then it became about acting. And then it became about controlling these huge groups. It's easier to control groups than it is to control, you know, it's easier to control big groups than it is to get individual votes. And I think the Republican Party a long time ago, when something happened, when we we demonopolized a lot of the corporations, they started going, well, the government's not going to allow us to be as big as we are. And they're not going to cooperate with us. Where do we go next? And they went to the priests and the pastors and they went to the churches. And now they're stuck there. That was their, that was their shortcut. They cheated. But now they're stuck there. And now all the candidates on the Republican side have to speak to these really, really like fanatical fanatical religious religious groups. And it doesn't even sound like America anymore. The stuff that's coming out of their mouths is insane. But they're doing it for the numbers and they're doing it to get in. I don't believe any of them. I don't think any of them are actually that religious. I think they're just using it as a way to get into the office. Totally. Uh, I don't think uh, churches should be uh, tax exempt. I think they should pay taxes. I, I think we, they, we should have a, uh, the separation of church and state, and that should also include uh, voter influence. Yeah. It should not be uh, part of the equation whatsoever. And, you know, the, the thing about the rise of Trump, you know, in 2008 when Obama started getting momentum, you know, it seemed like, there was hope and it seemed like, wow, we were headed for like a good place. Now it's the other side and I'm not yeah. a part of it. And it's not uh, pleasant to watch the rise of Trump because he's like the Louis Farrakhan yeah. for angry, older white guys. Yeah. 
and everybody's, oh, he says what he feels. Oh, he's he speaks from his heart. He's he's off the cuff. But like all this racist rhetoric and shit, uh, and anti-immigrant, and like he's a big business guy, and our the universal health care for people. You're right, is a Christian thing, but like our corporations, these these corporations fucked the medical system because it's the, the these drug companies that overcharge for all these drugs because it's the insurance companies yeah. that are paying for it, not the regular person. Yeah. All that needs to be changed. The drug companies uh, should be uh, taken over by the government or whatever, and the, the insurance companies, all that shit needs to change because our... Uh, a medical industry is completely yeah. run by dollars, as is our political system. Yeah, it's crazy. That's the scary thing. It's like if if there was a Caesar Milan for people, like a people whisper, and you said to him, "How's this happening?" He'd he'd say, according to social psychology, people we didn't know how to how to work together in groups of bigger than 150. After that, people would the guy that you're supposed to be afraid of, you wouldn't be afraid of him catching you. Do you know, it was lawlessness. So after, after about 150, how, how we got bigger than that and how we started having cities and states and countries is with shared fiction. We started creating stories and creating things that aren't even real. But if you share that fiction, even if you live thousands of miles apart, you're willing to, to cooperate with each other. And I think that's what these politicians are doing. And guys like Trump, he's going, what do, what do I want to share? What did we talk about earlier? The black man who said, I'm not an African-American anymore. I'm a cancer American. That's my biggest fear. So what's Trump doing is his whole campaign's based on fear. What are their biggest fears? I'll tell them that that's what I'm afraid of too. Right. But I'm a powerful man. I can do something about it. So he's a man that's going after, he's, his whole campaign is based on fear. And it's, it is like, it is the very definition of manipulation and control on a, on a dictatorial level. Like there's, he's not a joke. Like I think a lot of people are treating him like a joke. And I'm not actually the, as scared as this Trump. I'm scared of Trump 2.0. The guy who's going to say the same stuff, but it's going to sound less crazy the second time. We won't, we won't react as powerfully the second time. And I'm worried about this election because we've had two Democrats win already. We've had a Democrat win twice. Right. So Republicans are very motivated right now to vote. And that's what I worry about. I worry about the Democratic Party because we're not as good at voting as Republicans are. And Republicans have been waiting their turn for two turns. So I worry about that, you know. And uh, let's make America great again. Yeah. I think, what, is, is America not great? Exactly. Just because um, everyone can be whatever they want yeah. in America. That, um, that whole, it, it's like, if you're not rich in America, you inherently feel like a failure. Yeah. So that's, so all these people feel so, like, wow, if we, if we elect this, this rich business guy. Yeah. Wow, maybe we'll all have a chance to exactly. be to be rich. Well, you know when a comic says a really great premise and you can almost hear the audience go, that's so true. That's a really bonding moment, right? If if I close my eyes and listen to Trump, I'm like that I don't picture a guy in a suit that's a CEO. I picture a guy in denim that lives in a rural area that is afraid of immigrants that's never traveled, that's never I I think of like a working class, you know, like whatever, you know, I, I picture his audience more than I picture him. I don't even know if those are his real words or if he's saying the words that are gonna make his audience say, that's so true. Because those are not the words of an educated person. They're not even the words of someone who's lived his life. 
It doesn't make any sense that he's so afraid of immigrants, but he's never dated a woman that doesn't have an accent. Right. It doesn't make any right. sense. Right. That's just what I was thinking. He likes immigrants when it comes yeah. to uh, so hot, it's a lie. Ha- hot wives. Yeah. That that little that that little glitch in the matrix right there. Yeah. That's the wire that you can see on Pinocchio. It's not real. <laughs> that that's when you go, hey, there's something up with that, and it's not because it's not real. He's not saying what he feels. He's saying what they feel, and that's making them say that's so true. If he said he said three things that I believe, so then they assume everything else that he's just like them. Right. It's scary. Well, and I, it's interesting how the the the. The media keeps referring to him sometimes as a, a, a reality television star. Yeah. Which is cute. Yeah. He's a reality television star, yeah. right? I was in Las Vegas two weeks ago, and there's the big Trump casino. Mm-hmm. Forget reality television star. He's a casino owner. Exactly. If he gets elected, Biff from Back to the Future mm-hmm. is our president. Yeah, exactly. Sleazy scumbag <laughs> in the running suit with the gold chain yeah. and the cigar. Absolutely. You know, he had Trump casinos yeah. in, in Atlantic City and there's still the Trump casino yeah. in Vegas. Yeah. We got a sleazy casino owner. Yeah. Forget uh, reality television star property development guy. Yeah. He's a scumbag Absolutely. Casino owner. Absolutely. And I don't know anybody that's in the casino business that doesn't have some really shady things. Because it was built by the mob. You know what I mean? Like, you don't have a casino in Vegas without... I just don't... He's just not presidential. The things that keep coming up, coming out of the Republican candidates are people that aren't presidential. And that's that's scary, you know? Like, democracy is a great thing if everything's educated and... We're not voting the right way. Like a lot of people, like one of my friends works on Toyota advertising and he works on Priuses. And I said, you know what you need to do is you need to have in one of your commercials, a guy with a cowboy hat, smoking a cigarette, driving a Prius. Because then it's not about which team am I on. The Prius right now is associated with a liberal lifestyle. If you drive a Prius, someone who doesn't even know you, that's a conservative, assumes that you're a liberal. That's silly. Right. So I go, you need to, you need to break, you need to give the car more freedom by showing someone that you'd never expect driving a Prius, right? Like a Repub- Republican person. But that's what we do. We've created these factions, these sides, and it's it's human nature. Like Animal Planet, we see a mama tiger playing with a baby tiger, or they look like they're playing. She's actually teaching how to fight. And if you think about sports, sports are kind of like war games. Like if a basketball team in San Francisco plays a basketball team in LA, we're like, screw San Francisco. We're Southern California. Right. And then San Francisco wins and goes on to go play Texas. We're like, screw Texas. We're Californians. Yeah. <laughs> well, I would say, like, you know, I'm from Florida and the college football. It's like, it's always Florida State people hate the Florida Gators and yeah. vice versa. And they just, just hate. Yeah. Just because they, 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 they were taught that, yeah. that you're supposed to hate these people. Exactly. And I always say, uh, you know, how do we expect the Jews and the Palestinians exactly. to work it out? Exactly. If Florida and Florida State can't work exactly. it out. Exactly. Or Auburn and yeah. Alabama. I said the same thing when I was in London. These guys are like, hey, you know, you got a Muslim, dude, Muslim dad, Jewish mom. How, you know, these people are never going to stop fighting each other. And I go, I was in the north of England less than a week ago, and I saw two guys who had the same color skin. They had the same jobs, the same religion, and they are beating the living crap out of each other because they, they supported two different football teams. You know, it's just British... <laughs> angry like football you know and they they were beating the tar out of each other so even if we solve the uh the religious problem in the world there's people still gonna find 
minuscule ways to hate each other. Oh yeah, I think I think so. <laughs> I totally think. So. I mean, all that stuff because it's been. But I don't think there, there's a, a YouTube video called uh, "The Empathetic Society." It's this guy Jeremy Rifkin, and basically what he talks about is that we are not hardwired for violence and selfishness and greed. That's all stuff that's been shoved into our computers. And there's actually a good side to technology. Like we're starting to become more empathetic again because that's the way we used to be. And when we're empathetic towards each other, we worked well together. And we are supposed to be a cooperative species. But then when when money and governments and power started to come into play, then all of a sudden things started changing a little bit. And we, it started changing the, the, the way that we thought, the way that we our different value systems and things all completely changed. We started using language like superior, commoner, and peasant. Those were not organic things. They were just things that were invented, you know, shared fiction again, right? There's no such thing. But he would create these things in order to control larger and larger populations. You'd have these systems in place so we'd govern ourselves. And the countries kept getting bigger and the cities kept getting bigger. I think our country's too big. If, if, if we're so different now, maybe we need to split the country. Let's just split it. We, we agree to protect each other, but we live separately, you know? <laughs> We, give us your gaze. I like grid interior design. Yeah. Give us your gaze. Give us your Mexicans. I love Gay great food. make the world better, yeah, man. Exactly. How many, I always think that there should, some kind of metal, underappreciated gay people who have gone into bad neighborhoods <laughs> and turned them into Absolutely. nice neighborhoods. Absolutely, I love it. <laughs> it always, it's always like one gay couple moves yeah. into the worst neighborhood totally. in town and then nice things start popping totally. up around them. Totally, first you know, responders. Now there's a cafe where you can get a good cup of coffee Absolutely. in the corner. And, yeah. oh, look, there's, uh, you know, some nice shops. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love it. I, I think it's, it, it is, I really do think we, our country's too big. Like we're living off old models of how big things should be. And, and now because of the internet, we can actually see what other lives are like. And people who are liberal are starting to look at countries that are more liberal and going, why can't we be more like that? And people who are conservative are looking at countries that are more conservative and going, why can't we be more like them? And maybe we're just too big. And we need to take a break from each other. Not necessarily break up. Just take a break. <laughs> I, I, I need some time to sort things out. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just spend time apart. Uh, what is the greatest advice you've ever been given as a comedian? Oh. There's, two, there's one thing that I think about a lot. Uh, comedy is a weapon of the underdog. And it's something that I think about a lot, especially in the beginning when I'd have friends that were like, oh, you, you can't cuss with this crowd. They, they're really conservative. They're really, they're really uppity. And, I'm like, and I started realizing it wasn't the word that bothered him. It, it was your energy. It was like you became the alpha dog instead of staying the underdog. And I really, like me too, I'm, you know, I'm sleeved in tattoos. I have a bald head and a scar next to my eye. I am to anger what a red car is to speed. I can go the same as do the same thing a white one does and I'll get the ticket, right? It's just the way that it is. But so I'm very careful on stage about tipping over. And I had this one experience where uh, at this comedy store, three girls in the front row, like knockouts. Like they were definitely models, like Russian models, something like that. And they were drinking and there was a bunch of guys sitting around them and the guys were like really into them, but weren't getting a lot of their attention. And they just kept talking through everyone's sets. And one comedy, The girls or the guys? The girls did. So that one comic right before me went up and started speaking to the girls. The girls wouldn't stop talking. He goes, will you guys just shut up 
for once? Can you just shut up for one comic? And then he got booed. Because <laughs> these girls were feminine and beautiful and pretty. And he was this big... Rawr. So then I go out and I go, how do I... If comedy is the weapon of the underdog, how do I become the underdog in this situation? So I went out and I said, hey, it seems like you guys want to be part of the show. I'm like, do you guys want to play a game with me? And they're like, sure. And I go, let's pretend that you are three men and that I'm a lady. And they're like, okay. And I'm like, ready? And they're like, and they go, shut the fuck up. <laughs> I'm the place. Everybody laughed. And everybody laughed. <laughs> and when I went backstage, I like opened the curtain. And my friend was like. <laughs> it was, it worked, you know, it really worked. <laughs> That's great. So and that's one of my favorite. My favorite lesson for sure is probably you know remember that and then truth. Like anytime I I have to write like what I feel. I I, I write all the time. I try to be pretty um, diligent with it. But when stuff is just flowing, it's when something's. I don't write about the stuff I want to talk about. I write about the stuff I need to talk about, especially now. You know. There's a Charlie Chaplin quote. Uh, if you want to be truly funny, take your pain and play with it. I love that. Yeah. Hemingway, what did he say? He said, writing is easy. Just sit down and bleed. Right? Yeah. I like it. Similar. I like that, though. I really like that because it, it, it does turn things. Like, I, I, I did have a bad childhood. You know, like, my dad used to beat me up a lot. And then when he died, my therapist told me I could never keep an ad job for more than a year. That's why I went to all those countries because I was burning bridges. It was the Burning Bridges tour. And I, but I was, I was a traveler, so it was great for me, you know, to go to these other countries. And then I realized, I start, when I started going to therapy, my therapy goes, you know, you have this thing called intrusive thoughts. And he goes, like, when you're, like, my dad used to call me stupid all the time. So someone at work would go, hey, I disagree with you. In my head, I'd hear my dad going, you're stupid. And so I'd react as if they called me stupid. So I was living with this ghost in my head, you know, and it affected relationships and all that stuff too. So now with comedy, I mean, my God, I never had an outlet before. I could, even when my dad was dying, cancers, you know, stress and cancer go arm in arm. So when we finally, when he softened up and we started to spend quality time together, I couldn't talk to him about that stuff because I didn't want to upset him. It was the first time he was being really cool to me, you know, and then he died and I had nowhere to, to vent and no siblings and no other relatives. And I didn't want to upset my mom. So comedy was just like this amazing, amazing outlet. Yeah. I think I'm one of the few comics that I, I don't, like amongst my pack, where I don't care, like I am making it right now. You know what I mean? Like I don't care if anything else happens. I, I, I will gladly live in my tiny box with my mini fridge and my microwave and I'll be a cool tattooed older man that does comedy. You're enjoying this, yeah. this, this part of the I'm journey. I'm really enjoying this part of the journey. And I don't think <laughs> I would have had I started at 20. You know what I mean? Like I, I don't think at 25, five years in, I'd feel the same way as I do at 45, five years in. Like I'm much more... I, I really love it now. How do you feel you've dealt with the, the dad uh, resolution? Oh, so good. I, I use this metaphor where I say I'm not mad at my dad anymore because I understand the dynamics of abuse now. I understand that, that the guy, my dad was abused too. And the guy that abused my dad was like a vampire. And he bit my dad. And that turned my dad into a vampire. And then as hard as he tried not to, he bit me. And now I have to go to therapy so I can be like one of those vampires on Twilight. You know? <laughs> like I can still have a girlfriend, you know what I mean? Like one of those guys. Like I'm a vampire, but I can stay in the sun sometimes. You know? <laughs> You're a functioning uh, yeah. abuse victim. Yeah. But that's, comedy's absolutely changed my life. Like I was crippled before. Because there'd be times in the morning I'd brush my teeth 
And all of a sudden my face would become my dad's face. Like imagine the guy that kicked your ass all the time and every year you got older, you, be, you started to look more and more like him. So it made me scared. I was afraid to date anybody because if I liked someone, I'd immediately break up with them because I wouldn't want them to move into a haunted house. You know what I mean? And same, I was afraid of having kids. Like maybe there was some kind of a situation I'd get in where I'd become him. So it was all this stuff that if it wasn't for comedy, I would have never started to explore like that's the things that I used to keep in the closet. And then by starting to do stand-up, I started going into therapy. And now I'm like, I couldn't be happier. Well, it's funny, like there's all these like, you know, young, good-looking millennials and they all want to do comedy and shit yeah. now. And uh, comedy wasn't invented for the yeah. young, good-looking people who got everything in life. Yeah. Comedy was invented for the ugly and the damaged Amen. outsider people. Amen. You know? Yeah. So uh, I don't see how you can go far in comedy if you're young and good looking and you got everything in life. But, totally. you know, we see that it certainly happens. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. But I think those are sprinters in a marathon. I think they cramp up and you, you don't see them at the finish line. You know what I mean? I think they impress you out of the gate. But I, I never, no one's pretty at the finish line. Everybody's tired and they poop their pants a little bit. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have a scar above my eye. Is that a new scar or an old scar? That's a new scar. That's How'd you do that? Two years old. I uh, was in Philadelphia. Uh, I, I did uh, New Year's Eve at Helium. Uh, I had three sold out shows. Wow. Uh, the New Year's Eve was on a Wednesday two years ago. Mm -hmm. And then I had to stay and do the Friday and Saturday. But I had the January 1st, the Thursday off. Yeah. And I had 10 pints of Sierra Nevada. Oh, shit. It was a normal evening. I've been a heavy <laughs> drinker my whole life. Yeah. And um, I blacked out, oh. fell off of a bar stool like a drunk. Yeah. Because that's what I was. Sure. And I fell like a tree and my oh. my head hit the tile floor oh, my and God. my head busted open. And I honestly think it's one of the greatest things that ever happened to me. Yeah. Because... Um, I have not had a drink since then. Wow. I did not go to one single AA meeting. Yeah. I, I didn't, I didn't, there was no temptation. Oh man, I need a drink. Yeah. Fuck that. Yeah. I was done. Yeah. All I needed to do is look in the mirror and see the scar. Yeah. And I've never, I haven't had a drink since. That's great. And um, I never th imagined myself to be a non-drinker. Yeah. So, uh, and, and I think it's the best thing that ever happened to me because I, I'm so much happier. I don't have that low-level uh, depression all the time. Yeah. And, uh, I, 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 you know, I, I still have issues and I, I still have uh, anger uh, sometimes, but I'm a much happier person. That's great. So uh, how did you get your that scar? That makes me like that scar so much more. Yeah. I think yeah. it's kind of cool, too. You know what? When I was a kid, I loved G.I. Joe. Um, you're, you're my age. Remember G.I. Joe when it was big? Yeah. The, the G.I. Joes now are yeah. like three they're inches like tall. Like Our G.I. Joes tall. were yeah. like 10 inches tall. Yeah. But remember G.I. Joe, had a, he had a scar under yeah. his eye. Yeah. And I remember when I was a kid, I used to take a rock. And I used to like, <laughs> I used to like, I rub it because yeah. I, I thought that scar was really cool. Yeah. yeah. So... I kind of, and, and my, really my scar is symmetrical, at least. Yeah, it does. It, kinda, it looks good. It, it goes with the eye socket. Yeah, it does. It looks good. So I really, <laughs> I, I think my scar is really cool. That's that's so awesome, man. I love so that. So how, cool. how did you get your scar? The, my scar actually has influenced my life, too. Like, I got bit by a pit bull. Wow. So he actually bit me like this. I don't know if you can see it over, uh, over my your, eyebrow. You bit your he eye bit me socket. like that, yeah. Wow. 
And then I pulled away. When I pulled away, his tooth hit my eyelid. Ugh. And my face swelled up so quickly that they thought I lost my eye. But I didn't. Like, the fire department came and they had my head under a How sink first. I, it was like the year we got here from, from Egypt. Shit. Yeah. So the craziest part is I had to start wearing an eye patch at school. So the kids started calling me a pirate. And wow. I didn't know what a pirate was. What was so his name? Uh, Moshe Dayan? Huh? What was it? It was an Egyptian uh, military guy. Oh, oh, oh that's a, right. No, yeah. he was the, the Israeli side. Yeah, yeah, the Israeli yeah. guy. Yeah, yeah, I can't remember his name. Did yeah. I say Egyptian? I meant Israeli. Israeli. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the Israeli uh, military guy. Yeah. I remember growing up. Yeah, he was so cool looking, right? <laughs> he was awesome. Remember when guys with eye patches were just awesome, cool? <laughs> They're always like super interesting well, dudes. You, well, you shouldn't say that because now hipsters will start wearing. Oh eye god, patches. I'm waiting for that day. <laughs> I'm, it's gonna happen. The day I see an eye patch. So you, how long did you wear an eye patch? So he bit me. I had to wear an eye patch for like eight months. But here's the crazy part, and it, it absolutely influenced everything after that. I got bit by the wearing the eye patch. I start reading children's books on pirates, and I used to hang out in the library a lot because I'd I'd wait so ki- the kids that would I'd try to wait out the kids that were gonna jump me. So I just sit in the library for like an hour and then walk home. So I'm in the li- and I read all the children's books on pirates, and then I started reading adult books on pirates, and then I went, wait a minute. These guys have been demonized. They're, they're not pirates. They were soldiers for the English Navy. And the reason why they have peg legs and hook hands is because they were injured at war. These are like Purple Heart recipients, basically. And they came back and England said, we don't have any jobs for you. So they did the only thing they knew how to do, which was fight and sail. And then they even had bylaws, like really strict laws. They were really civilized. And I was blown away by how demonized they'd been. And so right then I started rooting for the Indians instead of the Cowboys, for the robbers instead of the cops. Like I started going, there's a conspiracy, man. Like I, I started listening, look, punk rock, I'm wearing a punk rock t-shirt, like the germs. Nice. Like ever since I was, I really got into punk rock, it distorted my whole reality. And I think when you're a kid too, when you reach teenage years, you start to realize your parents don't know everything. You start to rebel. Yeah. When you're an immigrant, it happens way sooner. Because when you're an immigrant, your parents don't speak English or learn English as quickly or culture as quickly. So I started ex- experiencing what kids experience at 13 when I was like eight, where I was like, my dad doesn't know everything. And I totally started getting into, into punk rock. And, and now, like recently, like all the stuff I go after now, it's like I, I keep thinking, like normalize what's been demonized. Like that's, th- that's what I try to do with, with, when I'm hanging out with Christian Arabs or, or Jewish family members who are demonizing Muslims, I go, no, that's not the way that it is. And when I'm with Muslims who are trying to demonize Jewish people, I go, no, that's not the way. I'm, I've always been sort of like the mother, mother, what do you call that? Mother goose? Is that the person who takes care of everybody in the family? Even though I was a, this little kid, I was the one that was sort of the voice of reason when I was like six. That's ridiculous. <laughs> I said it when I met you. I'll say it again. You are the answer to world peace, my brother. <laughs> Shit, I wish. <laughs> Now I'm definitely going to get assassinated, right? <laughs> have, uh, have you ever done stand-up in Arabic? No, I couldn't do it. No? Yeah, yeah. I've done it in, in English, and I've spoken English very slowly. And I've said, I've thrown out like a, an Arabic word here and an Arabic word there, you know, which is something I admire about your stuff, by What's the way. What's that? Anytime, anytime I've heard any of your albums, no matter what city you're in, you've always got like insider info, and it inevitably always gets like such a great laugh because it's, it's such a... Uh, I don't. I think of it as almost like comedy diplomacy, like it's like it's a it's what a good traveler does, but it's also what a great comic does. Like you, it, it's it's a polite gesture on top of on top of it. You know, being a good comedian, you were doing like this really polite gesture, which I really admired. Not from not just from the comedy side. It was it's like a James Bond move. 
from my perspective, more so than just a comedy move. It's, it's, it's the traveler in you more than the comic in you, I think, that does that. Cool. Yeah, I love, uh, it's the reason I travel. I love yeah. Uh, culture. Yeah, you know? me too. And then to immerse yourself into a, a country's culture and then to learn about it, you know? And like, yeah. people always ask me about traveling, doing comedy in different countries, you know? And like, you lose a certain amount of material things that they're not going to relate to. Yeah. But the exciting thing for me is what you're going to gain Absolutely. from your learning about a place and your observations totally. on, a, on a different place. Yeah. And, then, uh, and, and then also, you know, I've experienced a lot of the world, you know, from, yeah. um, you know, love stories and friendships and then just uh, stamps in the passport. Yeah. You know? That's, yeah. uh, for me, the most exciting one of the most exciting things is to, to go to a different country and then to be able to like, you know, kill, like get great laughs. Absolutely. You know, it's such a because great you're, you're, you're identifying with the people or you're, you know, yeah. you're touching them. And it's human when we're way. all human. Yeah. It's like the most human thing you can do. It is to go somewhere thousands of miles away from you geographically and culturally and make the and laugh simultaneously together. It's like a jam session, but emotionally, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's really, you connect with people when you do that. When I had the late night talk show in Amsterdam, one of the best things that was written about me uh, in one of the newspapers or magazines, they said that I was a great example of an American at a time wow. that the world desperately needed it. Wow, that's awesome. So like, uh, I... <laughs> that's great it's yeah. important that's an important thing like my grandpa used to say i've never met a well-traveled racist yeah uh, and i like that quote i like that i like that sentiment forget hitler for a second because <laughs> he traveled extensively <laughs> did he well you know <laughs> the war and everything <laughs> but like and it just it reminded me of like how important my nationality is i think it's easy when you immigrate to a country to start going oh i'm italian or i'm greek it's a it's a it's like a big joke amongst the iranian community uh, like when there's terrorism and stuff, they just go, oh, I'm Italian. But I think it's a huge disservice. Like if you, if someone who might be racist or who could be open to feeling racism meets one person, just one person who's of a certain nationality, they, it's much less likely that they'll ever be racist. Yeah, it's funny. So many times, uh, like when I lived in Holland or, or traveling around the world, um, I would hear people say, um, I like you and I hate America. Yeah. I've heard that sentence yeah. so many times. Yeah. And you know what that really means? <laughs> one Tom like plus one American dislike equals neutral. You've neutralized it. You're the answer too. That's true. <laughs> I think that's why I like you so much. I, I, uh, I, I, um, uh, you're the, I, you're not unlike me, even though you're completely have so much different backgrounds. Thanks, you know? man. That's a big yeah. compliment. I appreciate that. Yeah. I think that's true. What, and I think you're doing a powerful thing through your thank comedy. You, man. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate that. I'm, I'm loving it. Like, I, I'm so happy I'm scared of dying for the first time. Like, I've never been afraid to die <laughs> before. So good. Yeah, now things are good. Now I have stuff to do. I have, like, I have something to do, you know? And it's like, I, like, when I was on drugs, it wasn't that way. Like, I remember there was, like, when I was really bad on drugs, my last moment. How, what kind of drugs were you doing? Oh, Coke. Oh, I love cocaine so much. It's the best. Yeah, that's the worst for creativity. It's too. terrible for it's terrible for everything. I had I had I used to live in a house in the Hollywood Hills when I worked in advertising, and the TV show Design on a Dime came to my house, and one of the pieces of custom furniture they made for me is they took a bass that my cousin used to play when he was alive, and he died of a drug overdose, 
and they made a table out of the base. So there's this table with a base and a glass top, right? And, and this is fast forward two years, and I'm doing cocaine on the glass table, staring at my cousin's base wow. while I'm snorting coke. And I'm snorting coke alone, and I've done so much that I'm now totally naked, and like naked and hot, because and, I couldn't have air conditioning, but I could afford coke. And I did like all this coke, and I looked at like the last two lines, and I'm like, I'll just save this for tomorrow. And I never saved it for tomorrow. And then I started thinking like, if I die, it's gonna be really embarrassing for my mom if they find me naked, drugged out, you know? So I got up, I went to my bedroom, I put on a pair of underwear and I finished the blog. <laughs> and I just sat there and just, and I kind of like, like now when I think back on it, I'm wa I was waiting to die. I was like waiting for my heart to explode because I thought it was gonna happen. And I was just like, and I was okay with it. It's a really weird thing to like have that in the context of now, whereas now like, I don't even smoke anymore. You know what I mean? Because I care now. I, I, I like what I'm doing now. I'm happier with my life. So now I like, I, I don't want to die. Yeah. You know? And it makes me think about people like suicide bombers. How do you make people not want to die? Maybe it's how do we figure out how to give them a, a different reason to live? <clears throat> yeah, by having paradise in this world instead of some promised exactly. paradise exactly. in the afterlife. Exactly. That's, that's And the, all these young guys who can't get laid and... Um, you know, they think that all the vaginas in the afterlife. Yeah. It's a crazy thing. Like a lot of people are saying, oh, they're willing to die for this thing that they're being promised in heaven. And I go, I don't think so. I think they're willing to die for this thing that they have on earth. That's why they believe in that is because life on earth is so bad that they're willing to believe in this God all, you know, this something has this to be better. Something has to side, be better. This right? can't be the reason why I was born to live like this. So we'll find reasons to make them live, you know? Amen, brother. Yeah. Well, uh, you're a beautiful man. Thanks. I'm so happy you. to know you. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan. Friends. been a fan for a long time, so it's oh. good to hang out. Thanks, brother. In closing, is there any words of wisdom or advice that you have for the people of the earth? <laughs> for the people of the earth. You know what? I think I'm going to quote somebody. And the homeless guy. You know, he said there's still more good people than bad people. You know, like, no matter how shitty it gets, we outnumber them. We totally outnumber them. There's only, you know, whatever, whatever happens in the news from this point forward, and it, it might get worse before it gets better, but there's way more of us and we're the sleeping giants. The, the good people greatly outnumber the bad people. They're just the dogs barking and we're the caravan. We're moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, my brother. It'd be great to watch uh, where your caravan goes in the future, my Thanks, friend. Thanks, man. Yeah, absolutely. You too. And uh, long may you run, my brother. Thanks, man. You too. Long may you run.